We don't care about unequal outcomes inherently. What we care about is when we feel that unequal outcomes are the result of a rigged system. If we knew the system was fair, if we knew for sure it was perfectly meritocratic, no one would care about the resulting unequal outcomes between individuals or between groups. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Earlier this week, the FBI searched Donald Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago for classified documents of which he seems to be in the unauthorized possession. I have very divided feelings about how to respond to this. The first is that everybody is supposed to be equal under the law. But I have argued for many years on this podcast and elsewhere that Donald Trump is a serious danger to democracy. And I find it very plausible that he has committed a number of serious crimes. All of those things make me want to celebrate the prospect that he may be about to get prosecuted. On the other side of the ledger is my fear about what it means for a country when we've gotten to the stage in which a former president is prosecuted. And as it happens in this case, having his property searched with the express permission of an attorney general appointed by the opposite political party. And the way all of this is likely to accelerate distrust of American institutions and the country's already dangerously deep partisan polarization. Now, let me be clear. This is overwhelmingly the fault of one man, of Donald Trump. It is because of his serial breaking of rules and norms that we find ourselves in this position. But even though it is overwhelmingly the fault of Donald Trump, it means that the American Republic now faces a choice between two really bad options. The first of which is impunity, and the second of which is a prosecution of Donald Trump, which may very well deepen his hold over the Republican Party and make it even more likely that our democratic institutions ultimately fail. In the end, the FBI should not pay too much attention to those political considerations. If there is very clear evidence that Donald Trump has committed a serious crime, then he needs to be prosecuted for them. But when I try to look at the situation with a little bit of emotional distance, which is not easy, I can only say that there are not many hopeful scenarios for how all of this plays out. And there are many uh, deeply dangerous ones for American democracy. My guest today is Coleman Hughes. Coleman is the host of a great podcast called Conversations with Coleman. And he is also at work on his first book called Racialized, which discusses the ways in which we should and shouldn't take race into account in social life, in public policy, and addresses the question of what kind of aspiration we should have for what the America of the future will look like. We recorded this conversation as a live podcast at the second annual Persuasion Festival. If you want to come to future events like that and to follow our articles, please subscribe at www.persuasion.community. Common, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here again. Let's start talking about the book that you're writing at the moment. You say that it is a defense of colorblindness, both in the law and more broadly in our social norms. Perhaps to start at the beginning, how would you characterize the move away from colorblindness over the last decades? What has that change actually entailed? Yeah, so in the 60s and 70s, 
the, the conversation about race was substantially similar to what it is today in the sense that you had Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement on the one hand, you had more radical folks like the Black Power Movement, the Black Panthers, and you had an ideological conflict between them and arguments and so forth. But even then, you would see radical anti-racists such as the Black Power Movement admit that in the long run, our goal as a country should be to move towards a colorblind society. Now, what does that mean? That means a society in which race matters less and less over time, in which you can go for longer and longer periods of time without thinking about race, whether that's your race or the race of your friends, where it's not a big deal to go on a date or to marry someone of a different race and you almost don't even think of it as a thing where we don't use race in our public policy. So in the book Black Power, which coined the phrase institutional racism in 67, they admit that in the long run, a colorblind society may be the goal, but in the short run, we have to do a lot of race-based policy. Now, what has changed from then to today? Today, prominent anti-racists such as Ibram Kendi, Robin DiAngelo, and the people at the forefront of the modern anti-racism movement it would be difficult to find a single one that would even admit that the long-run goal for our country is to move towards a colorblind society. So that shining star, that North Star, has been abandoned entirely, which marks a very big difference from even yesterday's brand of radical anti-racism. If you look up colorblindness and just put the caveat race in Google so you don't get a bunch of articles about people who can't tell the difference between blue and purple, my Google filter, I will get 10 articles in a row about why colorblindness is wrong, how it's naive. Some will say it's racist. And yet, when you poll Republicans and Democrats, you find a remarkably high level of support for race-neutral policies in general. On the whole, people do not like when race is considered as a factor in things like college admissions, when you ask those questions in a poll or you know who gets hired, who gets promoted, by and large, most people of every race believe that the merit principle is basically the best way to go. So we have this elite consensus that colorblindness is horrible and it's basically white supremacy. At the same time as we have among people at large, a general sense that race neutral treatment is actually the best option. And so I'm trying to give a defense of race neutrality and colorblindness on this issue as an ultimate guidepost. So I did what you asked me to do while I was listening to you. And some of the first articles that come up are why colorblindness is a counterproductive ideology. That's a relatively mild title. And what does racism look like? Colorblindness. So in fact, for some people, racism has become part of the definition of colorblindness. Now, I want to hear your critiques of those attacks and your defense mm -hmm. of a colorblind ideal. But I would like, before we get there, to understand why people are saying this, right? So when people are saying, hey, actually to be colorblind is somehow racist, or at mm -hmm. least this ideology is really counterproductive. If you're serious about getting rid of racism, then you must discriminate by race in positive rather than negative ways. But what is it that the advocates of those race-conscious or race-sensitive policies and norms which center race in our society would make? Why is this necessary in order to be a true anti-racist according to advocates of that ideology? So there's a few things. One is generally the critique of colorblindness is that you need to see me as Black, right? You need to see race. You need to pay very close attention to race and to our racial identities if you are going to identify racism. Right? How can you see racism without seeing race? So that's the general perspective. And that applies to everyday interactions. That applies to your social life and everything else. When it comes to public policy, the idea is that America has been littered with a history of racialized and race-based harm, starting with slavery, and the aftermath of slavery, convict leasing, the rise of Jim Crow, redlining, and all kinds of ways, large and small, in which Black people specifically, as a raced group, were targeted with policies that were detrimental. And so one idea is that we need to put race into our current laws in order to essentially pay Black people back for that history, to restore 
at least some part of what was lost with all of those harmful policies to bring Black people where they might have been if not for the history of white supremacist policies. And then there's a kind of a third argument, which is just the amount of systemic racism in our society today, forgetting history, just the amount of racism in our society today justifies policies of racial preference that fight that racism. And one way of framing this is to sort of run together race blindness and racism blindness, right? Mm. So one way of framing this critique to sort of say, look, if you don't look at race, then you're not aware of when people are discriminated against, and so you can't do anything against that. What is your response to those points? I mean, part of it is to distinguish between race blindness and racism blindness, right? It's mm-hmm. very well investigate society along some of those criteria and notice when people are being discriminated against racial grounds and pass laws that stop this from happening without therefore wanting to make the basic rules which structure society and which govern who gets what kind of benefits and who has what kind of rights and duties dependent on the color of somebody's skin. But more broadly, what do you think the right response to those concerns is? I love the distinction you make between race blindness and racism blindness. Here's the way I would say it. The critics of colorblindness are right in a sense. They're narrowly right about the fact that actually we all do see race. We do. So it's actually misleading to say, I don't see race. Most people who say that, they're speaking metaphorically. What they really are saying is, I try my very best to treat people without regard to race. And I think the attacks on colorblindness, they often seize on that phrase, I don't see race, because it sounds ridiculous on its face. And they say all of these people are, you know, pretending to be noble and virtuous in a way that almost nobody but children is. And so they seem like they have a legitimate point of view there. What is true is that, yes, we all see race, but we really should strive to treat people without regard to their race. And we should celebrate that virtue. And here's the thing about colorblindness, you know, what I'm calling colorblindness or race neutrality, it's actually only by reference to a race neutral standard or a colorblind standard that anyone is ever able to identify racism, right? So it's not only not true that people who advocate colorblindness like myself, that we don't see racism. What is true is that people that reject colorblindness often end up blind to many kinds of racism because they think that it's legitimate to use people's race as something to put in public policy. So I'll give like one example of this. The best way I know of to study whether the cops are racial profiling when they pull people over is called the Veil of Darkness study design. And the first one was done in 2006. And basically, they use the fact that cops can't see you at nighttime, right? When the sun goes down, the cop doesn't really know the race of the person he's about to pull over. So if there's a big difference in the profile of who gets pulled over right before the sun goes down and who gets pulled over when it's dark, it's a natural experiment. And that can serve as a really good scientific measure for whether the cops are racial profiling. And what does that study design say? It says, there's this condition of actual color race blindness when we can't see anyone's race. And it's only against that benchmark in comparison that we are able to measure racial discrimination in any direction, whether it's against Black people, white people, Asians, Hispanics, etc. I mean, that's true across the board. So to abandon the goal of being neutral to race is actually to become blind to lots of kinds of racial discrimination. So what about another objection that people are likely to make? And it speaks to one of the ones you mentioned, but because of the long history of explicit racial domination in the United States, and because of a long history of more implicit forms of racial domination in the United States that continued even after those legal forms of discrimination were abolished, you know, ethnic minorities and African-Americans in particular are now disadvantaged, right? Live in neighborhoods which have less good schools, have parents that have less wealth, have parents that have had less access to education. And the only way to overcome the kind of racial disparities that this history has led to is 
to discriminate on the basis of race, to engage in affirmative action in universities, and perhaps even to have specific welfare entitlements or specific entitlements towards educational grants or small business loans, which favor applicants on the basis of uh, their belonging to this historically disadvantaged group. If we insist on race blindness, do we essentially, as the critics claim, condemn ourselves to living in a society in which the outcomes for different groups are going to continue to be grossly unequal for a very long time? There are lots of inequalities in our society. In fact, there are more inequalities than there are equalities between ethnic groups. So for example, if you look at income by ethnic group, you could just see this on Wikipedia, you're going to get a list of 100 different ethnic groups with Indian Americans making the most money. And I'm not sure exactly who makes the least money, but if you talked about ethnic groups rather than races, you would see that inequality of outcome is the norm, not the exception. Different groups of people have different median ages, come from different parts of the world, different cultures, different specializations, different levels of education. All of these things guarantee that unequal outcomes will be with us forever. That's a fact. And we've moved from talking about equality of opportunity to equality of outcome, something we could never get anywhere and have never had anywhere. And so I think first people need a reorientation of what they think is a normal circumstance, right? That you could see this in any sport, like the cliche example is the NBA's three quarters black, whereas baseball is a much whiter sport in terms of its composition. I would argue that probably has something to do with culture and the sports that different people grow up playing. That's an inequality that no one thinks of as an injustice because we are fairly sure that sports are a fair game. Sports are a true meritocracy. What does that reveal? It reveals that we don't care about unequal outcomes inherently. What we care about is when we feel that unequal outcomes are the result of a rigged system. If we knew the system was fair, if we knew for sure it was perfectly meritocratic, no one would care about the resulting unequal outcomes between individuals or between groups. I think our sense of justice is more process-oriented. So we should really focus on making sure that all the current systems in America are fair in a process-oriented way, not in an outcome-oriented way. What's an example of that? So in Chicago, they instituted cameras on traffic lights that would give out tickets simply based on taking a picture of your license plate, right? If you run the red light. So I talked about those studies earlier. Those studies have found that there is some bias against Black drivers. So one way to get rid of that would be to move to truly colorblind systems where a camera is giving out tickets instead of a cop. Camera can't be racist. I think it was ProPublica. One thing ProPublica found was that even in this new condition, the cameras were disproportionately giving out tickets to Black drivers because it so happened that in Chicago, Black drivers were somewhat more likely to run a red than a white driver. And I think we have to become comfortable with making our systems colorblind, regardless of what the result is, because that's actually what fairness consists in, not inequality of outcome. And then I'll address myself just to this final point about paying people sort of back for history. I think if it were possible to do that, I think I'd be for it. But I think it's actually impossible in the sense that for the people that most suffered from white supremacy, most of them are gone. Most of them were never repaid in their lifetimes, slaves and the children of slaves. And it makes very little sense to direct a policy at someone like me on the argument that you're somehow paying back my ancestors who were slaves in this country. That logic actually doesn't run through because of just how much things and circumstances change for people in the course of sometimes a single generation. And you always have to be sensitive to the fact that when you use policies that include race, racial preferences, for example, it is a zero-sum game. You are creating a new class of aggrieved victims who may never forget that you put them at the back of the line in the same way that Black Americans have never forgotten slavery and Jim Crow. And you create, in essence, a never-ending cycle of victimhood and aggrievement. And just like tit-for-tat violence 
never actually ends when the tat corrects the tit. It's like, you killed my brother, I killed your cousin. You know, have you ever heard of a spat that just ended there? And both sides said, you know what? I guess that's one for one. I, I, I suppose we'll just start from a clean slate. No, it actually never ends. And what you're going to get in America is what we already have because of slavery and Jim Crow and the historical memory. Black American culture has a deep sense of memory of victimhood. And what we're increasingly creating is a white working class that notices that all the policies coming out of the Biden administration that put white people at the back of the line for like pandemic aid, for restaurants, for to farmers, they notice that their race is a detriment to getting to college, elite colleges. If you're a business owner, they notice that their race is a detriment to them getting a government contract. And it creates competing victim classes, which both remember the injustices against them vividly. And that creates a very toxic long-term situation for race relations in this country. So I think there's at least three issues here that I want to tease out a little bit more. The first is about, can you get the right group? And, you know, what is the problem with the American habit of saying, look, there's injustices to a specific group, many members of that class are black, and so therefore we're going to give benefits to everybody who's black, but that will then include a lot of people whose families did not, in fact, suffer those injustices. So that's one issue I want to get back to. The second issue is the, is the question of reparations, right? What is the theoretical foundation for reparations? And is there some practical way of applying that today in a meaningful way? And then the third question is, well, in a just society, how equal will the outcomes for different groups be? And is there any hope of ever getting there? So let me return to this first issue. Affirmative action is complicated in the United States because its official justification is around diversity rather than about the injustices done uh, particularly to African-Americans over the last 400 years of American history. But it's clear that a lot of the support for it stems, in fact, from the right sense that there is a deep injustice that was done there and that, that makes it all the worse if top universities today don't have a certain percentage of Black students and so on. But the way this actually works in practice is that about half of the students at Ivy Leagues in the United States are the children of very recent immigrants from Kenya and Nigeria, who are often doctors and engineers and so on. Right. So I think that's one of the cases in which there is this weird mismatch between the group that really has some prima facie historical claim to special treatment, which would help them have the opportunities of which they might be deprived because of the long-run consequences of that injustice, and the group that actually ends up benefiting. And one of the things that I wonder about in the United States is whether we might end up getting relatively equal outcomes in income and wealth between Blacks and whites 50 or 100 years from now, but not by improving the conditions of the descendants of slaves, but rather by having more and more immigrants from the rising middle and upper class in Africa, whose kids and grandkids are clearly doing extremely well, according to statistics in the United States. And so you get this very bifurcated Black population, which would sort of be a strange, quote-unquote, solution to the historical injustice we've suffered. So do you think that part of the solution here, if somebody is trying to defend some forms of affirmative action, for example, is to tailor these programs more specifically. I don't in general agree with the American descendants of slaves, ADOS, uh, sort mm -hmm. of part of the activist group. But do they have a point when we say, look, yeah, affirmative action at the moment is kind of weird because, you know, we're letting in these kids of, you know, Kenyan and Nigerian engineers, and they might be wonderful people. I've taught many of them. They are, in fact, wonderful and very talented people. But when we're talking about something like affirmative action, it should really be reserved more specifically to the descendants of slaves and more broadly, perhaps part of a way to save these more race-conscious policies is to be much more specific about who should benefit from them. What's your objection to that kind of line? Yeah, it makes perfect sense at first blush, which is if all of this stuff is intended to repair a historical harm, why are we lumping together? people that are descendants of actual slavery with immigrants that got here two seconds ago and happen to be of the same skin color. So here's what I would say to that. Let's accept that line of argumentation, but really take it to where it deeply points to. Where that argument is pointing to is we ought not be misled by the superficial category of race 
when what we're really caring about is correcting some underlying injustice in the world, like balancing the scales in some way, um, correcting for privilege. So let's just talk about that in non-racialized way, right? If we're already admitting that we're being misled by this category of race, let's actually talk about the meat of the conversation, right? The meat of the conversation, it isn't even historical injustice. It's basically the fact that a human being like me grew up with what you might call a lot of privilege, right? Not just money, but in a safe neighborhood where I never had to worry about getting shot or getting mugged on the way to school or having to act tough in order to prevent that. I had two parents in the home that were encouraging me to do my homework. And I had an expectation that I should go to college and the expectation I wouldn't commit crime. And that entire incubator of good habits and pro-social behavior is an enormous privilege over somebody born into poverty, somebody of any race born into poverty. I think what we really care about in these conversations, it's not race. It's not my six generations of removal from slavery. It's doing something so as to acknowledge in our policy the difference between someone who grew up like me and someone who grew up with much less advantage. And so let's just talk about that. It's actually not about race. And then the next question becomes, what is the best proxy for that thing? What's the best proxy measurement? Is the best way to actually get at that, to just put all the Black people on this side and put the white people on this side and treat them differently? Well, no, we've already admitted and the ADOS people would admit that race is actually too crude a proxy for that thing. I would say some collection of measurements relating to like income and like the level of crime in the neighborhood that you grew up is probably a decent proxy or can be at least. There's no perfect proxy, but the proxy of income and class is much closer to that core of what we're caring about than anything else. And it's rarely talked about as if that were true. Yeah, and definitely the way in which we use racial categories in this country is so incredibly broad that it's just a really bad proxy, right? When the New York Department of Health reserved Paxlovid to people who either had serious preconditions or who were non-white a few months ago, you know, that lumped together ethnic groups that did on average have much worse outcomes from COVID and Asian Americans who actually had much better outcomes from COVID on average than white people. And as you're suggesting, the real underlying driver most likely is socioeconomic condition. Do you live in an apartment with many other people? Do you work a blue-collar job where you can't socially distance from people? And all those other kind of conditions, which seem to actually explain why some groups ended up being more likely to suffer adverse consequences from an infection from COVID than others. Let's go to the second point on reparations. I think here, this may be the point where we have the strongest disagreement, actually. So I'm going I'm to push you a little bit on that. Mm. At least on the theoretical level, it seems to me that there is a very straightforward argument to be made here, right? When you look even at somebody like Robert Nozick, a libertarian philosopher, he says, look, you know, there's justice in acquisition, you know, just ways of coming to own property. There's justice in transfer, just ways of exchanging property. And according to him, this licenses great inequalities, right? If you invent something or if you are a great basketball player and everybody wants to come see you play, and through a series of free transactions, you end up much richer than everybody else, that's perfectly fine. But even somebody like Nozick says there's also rectificatory justice. Right? If you did not, in fact, acquire your property in just ways, or if money was stolen from you, or the fruits of your own labor were stolen from you, then there should be some rectificatory principle which helps to make you whole. So that seems like a pretty good prima facie justification for reparations. Another way of making this point is what a friend of ours put to us recently, Coleman, which is, well, look, there's all of these people on the left who thinks that there should be, you know, extremely high property taxes and inheritance taxes, mm -hmm. right? To make sure that the next generation doesn't get an advantage from the fact that their parents were affluent. And yet some of those same people think that there should be 
strong forms of reparations. And aren't those two points mutually exclusive? I think that's true, but you can also put the foot on the other shoe and say, well, hang on a second. If we believe that it is in fact just and acceptable for parents to give some of the money they've made to their parents and to pass it on, then if some parents have been stopped from being able to do that because of the injustices they suffer, we need to rectify that in some kind of way. So there's a potential inconsistency here on the anti-capitalist end, but you know, mm-hmm. you're somebody who I believe believes in capitalism. There is mm-hmm. also a potential inconsistency here for capitalists, that if you think mm-hmm. that it's fine to have inheritance from one generation to the next, that also provides a kind of prima facie justification for why we should rectify the fact that some people have been stopped from being able to pass an inheritance on from one generation to the next. So isn't there, at least at that level, a pretty strong case for some form of reparations? Yes, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point. I mean, so the, the first thing I would point out is I know of not a single example in which reparations have been paid to the five or six great grandchild of the original injustice. And this would have to do with slavery as opposed to Jim Crow. You know, like many people who lived through Jim Crow are still alive, such as my grandparents, and could and should be given reparations for having lived through a system that we all look back on with horror. But yeah, I mean, I think we would all admit that there's a certain number of generations removed from the original crime where no logic of generational wealth transferal would ever possibly, it just becomes so ridiculous, right? So like we would all say after a hundred generations, you're just too removed from the thing. And so then it becomes a thing of we're haggling over the boundary line. Like how many generations is too many? And all of the examples of reparations that we have from internment of Japanese Americans during World War II to victims of the Holocaust were overwhelmingly paid to the victims themselves or at most their children. And I think that reflects a kind of common sense idea that it's actually just not the case that your great, great, great grandchildren are necessarily harmed by what you went through in a way that is obvious or intelligible or that that we're able to comprehend. It just begins to boggle the mind. The harm becomes... It's like this butterfly effect thing. After a certain while, you just have no idea how your life would have been different if your great, 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 great grandparents went through something else. And that's basically what I would say. I think we're waiting for a kind of closure that's never going to be given from the outside. So for example, the Senate and the House of Representatives have both issued formal apologies for slavery and Jim Crow. Eight or nine different states have independently issued formal apologies, southern states, for for slavery. And as recently as like a year or two ago, I read an article saying that the government has never apologized for slavery in like NBC or something. And I thought to myself, how could it be possible after so many official apologies from federal government, from state governments, that a major news organization could get it so fantastically wrong and say there have been zero apologies. And I think there is an attitude that nothing could possibly actually be enough. And I'm certain if reparations were paid today, no matter how large really the check was, tomorrow we'd be reading New York Times editorials about how dare you if you think that reparations represents the end of repayment to Black people for slavery? And how could you possibly reduce the magnitude of slavery to a check like this? It would be very similar, actually, to what happened pre and post the election of Obama. So before the election of Obama, especially in you know, like 2006, 2007, what any Black person in America almost would have said, and frankly, what I think what most white liberals what white Democrats would have said, and maybe white Republicans, is country's not ready for a black man to be president. We're still too racist. We would never, we can never possibly elect one. We're, we're not even close. And then we did it. And then right after, everyone said, well, actually, this doesn't mean anything. This doesn't mean anything about how much progress we've made. 
And that's the thing you say about Obama now, right? If you talk about Obama representing serious progress America has made, the same people who said it wasn't possible before didn't update their views of the country when their model of America was refuted by his win. And I think that that's precisely what would happen. I mean, you've also seen it happen with Juneteenth, federal holiday Juneteenth, which I support makes perfect sense as a federal holiday to celebrate the end of slavery. And it's almost surprising we didn't do it earlier. But before Juneteenth, there was this big USA Today article, I remember, which said, we should make Juneteenth a federal holiday, and it's going to be really tough, right? There's going to be resistance because it's about slavery, and Americans don't want to think about slavery. Two seconds later, we did it, bipartisan. And now Juneteenth, you know, in a few years, it'll be a complete snooze. It'll be like Black History Month. It'll be like Martin Luther King Day. It'll just be something we take for granted as representing zero progress on the idea of race and historical reckoning. It will just be, you know, put put in the pocket as if it's always been there and meant nothing. And I think that we're on a very kind of dishonest treadmill with ourselves as a country as we run and run towards this goal of like closure with our history. And with every step, the ground moves beneath us. And maybe we should get off the treadmill. Yeah, so when I think about practically what it would mean to implement reparations, since I think we we agree that there's some strong theoretical justification for it, and then perhaps we have slightly different instincts about practically how feasible it is or how positive or adverse the consequences would be, right? So one practical difficulty is that it's going to be incredibly hard to trace people who are alive today to specific wrongs that were done to their ancestors. Of course, it'll be relatively easy to say, well, you know, are you a descendant of slaves? And so therefore, there's been significant wrongs. But the link is going to be less individualized than it is with something like Japanese internment or something like Mm -hmm. the Holocaust, because there it's people who are alive or people whose parents were alive, who can show sort of specific documents and so on, right? And so as a result, we probably would have to over-include some people who did not, in fact, suffer the specific forms of wrong for which we're being compensated. And there'll be some risk, but we under-include as well, that some people, for whatever reason, fall through the cracks of the system and don't gain reparations, even though they've suffered the same or analogous forms of wrong in the past. Now, to me, that isn't a definitive objection. That's a problem, and certainly it'll take a lot of attention to design a system that's not wholly irrational. But look, if making sure that people whose ancestors suffered this terrible form of wrong get some form of recompense requires some people who do not suffer the same forms of wrong also benefiting from it, that doesn't seem like the end of the world, right? That's Mm -hmm. the best we can do, fine. Where I think the argument starts to have more force is about how that's going to structure society in a long-term way, right? That if this produces different class of citizens, who will forever have to be locked into an identity that they might otherwise over time come to uh, attenuate, or if it leads to ongoing conflict between different ethnic groups, which may actually worsen outcomes for all of these ethnic groups, or perhaps particularly for the ones that have been historically marginalized, that becomes a very strong objection. So let me push you on how likely that is. You know, sure, If we have a one-off form of reparations, which is generous, which is substantial, but which doesn't entrench a perpetual system of differentiation between different American citizens, will it satisfy all critics? No. Will some people claim that not much have been done? Sure. But if it actually does, in some substantial way, do what we can many decades later to right a historical wrong, And if it convinces some people that something substantial has been done, isn't that worth it, even though some others might continue to say that nothing's ever been done? So here is where I think one's model of human psychology would lead you to different conclusions. So if you really imagine that we put a substantial amount of money behind a reparations program and it was monetary, like you got a really meaningfully sized check with slavery in the memo line, basically. I, I guess there's the naive view of this, what I would call the naive view of this, and what, and maybe the cynical version of this. The naive version would say, well, people would be happy to get 
that money and it would be meaningful to them as a serious symbol of the government's remorse, of the U.S. government's acknowledgement of a, of a harm and attempt at remorse. And people would say, okay, well, I'm glad this happened. I'm going to go on with my life now. Now, what would a cynical economist or a, a person that thinks largely about incentives as a motivation for behavior, how would such a person view this scenario differently? So you're telling me, we wrote a bunch of op-eds and wrote a bunch of books and made a lot of noise about reparations. And as a result of that behavior, I just got $10,000 of free money. Does that suggest I should stop doing the behavior that just gave me the money or I should keep going? Right? If you reward something with a substantial enough sum of money, human nature's first instinct is not to stop doing the thing that got you the money. It's actually to do more of it. And one might view that as cynical, but I really do think if it were enough money to be meaningful to people, human nature would kick in and you would get just as much or maybe twice as much activism and noisemaking on the same exact topic. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be consciously cynical in people's minds. But I do think that people do more of what they're rewarded for financially and socially. And what reparations would be is, in essence, a massive subsidy to the subset of people that are highly energized to continue advocating for more reparations. And the thing is that their arguments will actually be just as valid the day after reparations as they are today. Like No matter how big the check is, it's not going to be big enough actually to cover the moral enormity of enslaving millions of people. Nothing really could be because it boggles the mind. So let's go to the third piece that we wanted to touch on, which is about what the long-run future of a society is going to be. So you were saying, look, there are all of these different kinds of inequalities in terms of socioeconomic outcomes. You know, one striking example of this is the French Mainers, people who came from Quebec to the state of Maine of the course of the last 150 or so years, who for various reasons were likely to be much poorer. And they actually continue to have much worse outcomes today than other residents of the state of Maine. Now, we don't talk about those inequalities very much, and they seem to have attenuated a little bit, but not all that much, right? So there's a kind of tempting view which says, look, you know, French Mainers, you know, some Scots-Irish people in Appalachia, some socioeconomically deprived people in the north of England in certain areas around Manchester, for example. And yes, some communities of descendants of slaves are going to continue to be much poorer than the rest of the society, and we just can't do anything about that. My reading of the evidence is actually a little bit more hopeful, which is that uh, there are intergenerational processes which lead to a kind of reversion towards the mean. It's just that those take a very long time, and that we can actually hope for some real reduction in inequality of earnings, inequality of wages, because of that reversion to the mean, it'll, it'll just take a significant period of time. Where do you stand on this? Do you think that sort of one of the bullets that we need to bite in order to get on board with your moral vision of a world is that on average, descendants of slaves in the United States, or perhaps more broadly, uh, Black people in the United States are just always going to have less wealth than, than mm -hmm. white people? Or do you think that over time, those inequalities will attenuate or perhaps go away, even if we adopt race-blind policies? Yeah, that's a good question. So as much as I said earlier in the conversation that inequality is the norm and is, is always going to be there, I don't mean to imply that equality of outcome is not a goal worth pursuing, actually. This is another thing that separates me from some of what I would call like the neo-racist policies of, of racial preference and so forth. A lot of these aim for a kind of artificial equality. So it's like, we don't have 12% Black engineers at our firm. And so we're going to rig the game to just put a few more Black engineers here, even if they're actually not on par with the average employee here. And then we're going to call that having achieved equality of outcome with respect to our firm. I would say that that's an artificial equality. And the reason it matters is because 
those people will always be under a cloud of suspicion, silent suspicion by their probably liberal right-thinking colleagues that, I don't know, Coleman felt like he might be an affirmative action hire. Can he really do the work at the level that we do at this firm? This is what people will be thinking. My claim is that you can have achieved a quality of outcome in that superficial way without having achieved what a quality of outcome is good for. And the reason that it would be better to live in a society where we did have substantial, as opposed to artificially, a quality of outcome is because people would have fewer and fewer and eventually none of those thoughts of, oh, he's an X, that means he might be no good at this. He's a Y, so they're very good at this, you know. And, you know, ultimately, the, the reason I care about moving closer towards a society with equal outcomes is because when things are vastly unequal, it encourages people to stereotype in their minds subconsciously, right? If, you know, hypothetically, 40% of the great computer engineers are Asian, people are going to helplessly stereotype Asians as good at that skill and stereotype Black people as poor at it. And that's bad. That's a bad thing. But it's something we will naturally do until we actually have a condition of substantial equality of skills and equality of achievement in various domains. And like I said, it's never actually possible to get full equality because the tension between equality and liberty, if people are free to choose and cultures are free to choose, then they're going to choose to specialize in different things. But we should want to move there with public policy that's on the basis of you know class and income and so forth, so that we get a society where it's actually possible to rarely or never think of a person's race. Tell me a little bit about your positive vision. So I think we've had a really great detailed discussion of the criticisms of a colorblind ideal and your responses to those criticisms. You know, what substantively would a society that is not racialized in the ways you talk about look like? And what substantively should public policy do to ensure that people drawn from any demographic group have real opportunities to flourish in the United States and in other democracies around the world. So on the racial front, I think we should, as much as possible, foolproof our systems against bigotry. So I gave the example of cameras on traffic lights handing out tickets instead of cops, right? If racist cops are the problem, take the cop out of the equation, have it be automated. If you're a teacher, grade your students blind so that you know racial bias could never possibly be a problem. There's a news organization that did a careful sting operation on the housing market in, uh, I forget, if, I think it might have been Staten Island or Long Island, where they sent trained actors of different races into a real estate office and saw how they were treated differently, right? We should fund and do more things like that. Make society more and more like a blind audition in order to take racial bias out of the equation. I think that's one thing we should move towards. Other things that I guess are, are relevant to this are, you know, education. Education is one of the only ways in which the state gets to intervene in a person's odds of success at a very early age. One of my critiques of elite woke writers and thinkers is that many of their policies and solutions take people from the age of 18 and rig their life racially after that in the name of helping them. This would, you know, things like affirmative action and diversity and inclusion initiatives for adults. Whereas you actually have by far more influence over a person's life trajectory from ages, you know, zero to 15. I would say like those are the most crucial years of intervention as a person's brain is forming essentially. And so every cent of the $23 million in New York that was earmarked for putting teachers through quote unquote anti-bias trainings, you know, every cent of that wasted money should be put towards early childhood initiatives and cognitively rich you know, universal pre-K programs and experiments in schooling like charter schools or the ones that are really good 
and um, towards making the environment for poor kids from age zero to 15 and 18 as safe and as cognitively rich as possible. And then uh, like, you know, that word safety is another crucial one. Nothing in life matters if you feel unsafe. If you live in a neighborhood with lots of crime, everything else is secondary and tertiary. And it is one of the biggest disparities between the poor and the wealthy. And it's in fact what the wealthy use a lot of their monies to buy a premium for is to live in safe neighborhoods. And so that's another thing that we really have to pay attention to. We've talked about public policy a lot. What does some of that look like in the culture more broadly and in interpersonal relations? You know, I'm struck by the fact that there are many disanalogies between Jews in Germany and African Americans in the United States, many ways in which their situation, the history is very, very different. But I do feel a certain kind of similarity in parts of a culture where growing up Jewish in Germany, I was the sort of representative of a class of victims. And many people tried to prove to me how sorry and apologetic they were and tried sort of treated me with certain kinds of kid gloves and gave me certain is, kinds Is there of a German money. equivalent of I voted for Obama twice? It used that, to be for a very long time, you know, I love Woody Allen so much. Oh, interesting. Interestingly, but there's all kinds of different versions of that. So yeah, absolutely. So I always found that to be deeply alienating. And one of my mm. odd experiences coming to the United States is that over time, the pressure to engage in some similar behaviors has increased, which is to say that now in the United States, I simply read as a white man. So I've gone from being a member of a group of victims to a member of a group of uh, perpetrators in some kind mm -hmm. of sense. And in certain social situations, it is expected to treat others in ways which signal not exactly a deference, but a similar form of special attentiveness and carefulness, right? Mm -hmm. And I have to say that I personally dislike that because I felt when I was growing up that people weren't treating me as a real equal and I don't want mm. to treat others in ways that aren't treating them as real equals. Can listeners to the podcast do anything in their own lives to avoid treating people like that? Or, you know, can they do something to, to create a culture in which we're able to connect deeply as human beings uh, without stereotyping each other as members of groups? What does it mean to try and lead, in your sense, a race-blind life away from mm -hmm. public policy, but just in terms of how you deal with your colleagues and acquaintances and friends and so on? That's an incredibly difficult question. Well, in writing my book, somebody asked me, is what you're giving a sort of a kind of guilt-free, self-examination-free argument, right? Like, are you giving people just a reason to say, oh, I'm fine. I don't need to think about stuff. I don't need to examine myself. And I thought about that and I, I thought, that's really not what I'm doing. Actually, that's really not what I feel that I'm doing. I feel you should question yourself. You should say, am I treating this person differently because of his or her race? And try to really answer that honestly. And check in with yourself and understand that we are all capable of being biased. And it's something we should actually be reflecting on in critical moments. But if you come to the conclusion that you're not, I actually would have said that either way. You know, to not let yourself be bullied by a particular person into feeling that maybe you're a racist or, or something like that. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, the people you're around, the people you talk to, you have to like them for who they are as individuals and for reasons that go deeper than race or skin color. I guess the way to live a colorblind life is to be honest and to be vulnerable to go a little further in saying what is honest and, and true and what you really believe than you would normally be tempted. I think, so I mean, I, I assume people that, that like persuasion are, are folks that are tapped in more or less to, you know, the discourse, you know, the online, the chattering class, what people are saying on Twitter, what people are writing in newspapers, right? One side effect of being too tapped into this world is the toxic ideas that you find on Twitter can seep into your consciousness in your real life. And they can make you paranoid about saying the wrong thing in ways that you actually don't need to be. And so one recommendation is to get in touch with your real life, definitely like off of cable news, off of Twitter, off of the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, you know, off of major media. 
get in touch with your real life and your real passions and your real hobbies and connect with people doing those things and be honest and vulnerable. And if you do that, you can't help but make connections that transcend race. So I guess that's what I would say. That's a great answer. I have a final question for you, which is about how hopeful you are for the future of the United States on these issues. Now, you know, I was struck reading a few months ago an article that Kimberly Crenshaw published in 2011, I believe, on sort of the 20th anniversary of the founding of critical race theory. And she was saying at the time, you know, with Obama in the White House, there's this really powerful narrative of post-racial society that has taken hold. And so the prospects that the core ideas of critical race theory might have real public purchase or that we might get a more critical understanding of racism in the next decade are very, very low. Now, I think the set of ideas that Kendi and D'Angelo have popularized have a complicated relationship to the thought of somebody like Crenshaw, who's much, much more sophisticated and I think persuasive than, than people like Kendi or, or D'Angelo. But it certainly is derived from it historically in a relatively obvious way. And it has come to have this tremendous influence on the country. So when you look at the last 10 years, the temptation is to project forward into the future and to say, well, we're going to keep moving away further and further from what you're talking about. On the other hand, we should be reminded by Crenshaw's misjudgment about the prospects for success of her theory that there are also weird pendulum swings in history, that things can mm -hmm. swing from one kind of equilibrium to a very different one. So mm -hmm. how do you assess where we're at in terms of the influence of these ideas which stand in radical opposition to yours? And how hopeful are you that your vision of American society might succeed over the next 25 or 50 years? Oof. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. I don't know is the short answer. The long answer is that, yeah, it could just keep going in the same direction. I mean, some days I have the sense that Gen Z is so absorbed by race obsession and gender identity obsession that all these things are just going to represent new normals for society by the time I'm I'm older or middle-aged. And other days I feel that so much of the race-obsessed and gender-obsessed ideas run counter to what people actually want, that they don't have much staying power. In this day and age, racial segregation doesn't have much staying power because I think people like each other too much <laughs> to stay away from each other. The idea that you can't hit on someone in the workplace and go on a date with them may not have much staying power. You know, there are trends that sometimes run so counter to what people want and always want that you can safely bet against their long-term prospects. But the truth is, I don't know how everything is going to shake out. And rather than passively watch, I would like to be an advocate for the idea of a colorblind society and a society where you can go for weeks or months at a time without thinking of your race. You know, several people from Jamaica, for instance, have told me, you know, I just never thought of race before I came to America. I never thought of myself as black. I never thought of anyone else as black. Of course, you're coming from a country where almost everyone's black, and, and that's why people either say it neutrally or negatively. I've never once heard someone say, I never thought about myself as black. Then I moved here and thought of myself as black. And that really represents an improvement over the prior status quo. So I, I don't think that we want to be thinking about race more. I think we want to be thinking about it less. And I think that's also what Gen Z wants. And I think it's reflected in like the actual TV shows they consume. And so I would be tempted to like be sort of short woke race obsession in the long run when it's no longer trendy and, and people feel less pressure to agree with it. I think there's a lot about it that is unsustainable. Colin Hughes, thank you for joining us at the Persuasion Festival and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Yasha, anytime.
Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.